This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you from a very small room at Vox Media headquarters, talking to you on the phone with Nate Sloan, Charlie Harding, the brilliant, genius, generous, good-looking <laughs> co-host of Switched On Pop and now the authors of Switched On Pop, how popular music works and why it matters. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Peter. Great to be here. Yeah, where are you guys, by the way? We're also in a very small room in Los Angeles, so we, we sympathize. Oh, we should have done this when we were both on the same coast. We'll figure it out one day. Anyway, nice to chat with you over the phone. Um, we're going to do a couple things here. We're going to talk about your new book. We're going to talk about your podcast. But the thing that I'm really excited about is you're going to explain how popular music works to me and our audience. This is the kind of stuff I love the most. That's right. Do you want to just briefly explain how the podcast and then the book came to be? Yeah, the podcast came to be, uh, it all stemmed from a conversation about Carly Ray Jepsen, a.k.a. St. Jepsen, the uh, singer of Call Me Maybe. That was the song that really started the show. We realized there was so much to unpack of how this song worked, the compositional techniques, why it was one of the biggest hits of 2012. And then we thought, you know what, we can share some of these insights with people through a podcast. And that grew organically, incredibly, over five years. Uh, and as it did, people kept contacting us, and they were like, so where could I read more about some of the concepts y'all discuss on the podcast? And we thought, huh, there's not really, we don't really know where to send anyone. You know, you, we, you, could, you could pick up like a textbook uh, for a college class, but that wouldn't be very much fun. Um, and then we thought, well, maybe we need to write it. And now here we are. We're thrilled to have this book that breaks down fundamental concepts of music through 20 great pop songs of the last 20 years. It's so genius. I mean, obviously, my only criticism is that it needs to be a podcast, not a book. <laughs> um, Noted. But I guess you already made the podcast, so it's redundant. And you guys have, have day jobs. Uh, Nate, you're a musicologist, which I think it means you have a day job as a professor, correct? That's exactly right. Yeah, at the University of Southern California. He's wearing a very nice tie and professorial jacket right now, just so you know. Thank you, Charlie. I hope there are, uh, what do you call it, elbow pads? Ooh. Patches? No, no elbow. I do have some, no. uh, some clip-on patches. I can, <laughs> just give me one second. Perfect. And Charlie, you write songs yeah. for a living? Yeah, I do songwriting and production, and I also run the whole show. Awesome. So um, I got to say, I was reading your book yesterday, and I got to the part where you guys explained the, the origin story. I thought, in, 24, in 2014, right, is, is mm -hmm. Call Me Maybe? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, well, the song came out in 2012. We started the podcast two years later. Okay. 
But so, so in your telling of it, you're in the back of the car, your partners are driving in the front, and you go, wait a minute, pop music is amazing, we didn't realize <laughs> this, and we've been, we've been wrong all our lives. That can't be the case, right? It never occurred to you prior to that that pop music was amazing? I mean, I think from my perspective, I knew that we were both music snobs, but maybe Nate had been uh, converted before I had. And by snobbery, I mean, I think we were sort of stuck in either like rockist, jazzist, or classicalist uh, traditions. And uh, I think there's you know, some pretty, uh, there, there's a ubiquitous and sort of, if, if you will, just kind of boring criticism that, well, pop music is just fluff and thus it must not be interesting or worth any attention. Yeah. And when Nate broke down Call Me Maybe in front of me, I was like, oh my gosh, there is depth to what's happening here in the harmony, in the melody. The whole composition is actually bringing alive this idea of relational ambiguity in a really fun and engaging way. And I, I realized that it was really my own snobbery that was holding me back from hearing with more open ears. And so really, the show has been a, a, a process of not just learning to hear better, but becoming totally enmeshed in love with pop music. So I'm going to be the audience avatar for a second. Uh, relational ambiguity is not a term I've heard before, but I have heard of <laughs> rockist and sure. also poptimism before. But I think a lot of folks in the audience may not have heard of these terms. And so here's my version of it. Poptimism and is what you guys are doing, basically, with saying, hey, pop music is real music. Um, you should take it seriously just because it isn't recorded by a guy with a guitar who may or may not have written the song himself. Um, maybe even there was a literally a house full of people who made this song for you. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be taking it seriously. Um, and rockist, right, is, is someone traditionally an older person who thinks of rock music is, is sort of the quintessential important music and it traditionally is written by a guy or maybe two guys performed in a band you know recorded on vinyl etc and that's quote real music and poptimism is I think at one point was considered sort of daring and and, and countercultural and now I think it's pretty much the accepted sort of way that quote smart end quote people think about music is that all fair Damn, Peter, that was a very succinct and accurate summary. I'm, uh, yeah, kudos. I felt like I was rambling. Yeah, no, you okay, nailed good. it. Okay, good. Got it. All right, so we've got all that. We're, we don't, we are going to stipulate that pop music is important and complex, and we should all understand it better. So we're going to get a free lesson. You guys can send us both. <laughs> send all three of us money if you want. But we're going to get a free lesson about pop music from Charlie and Nate. I'm going to interrupt periodically. Right on. Ready? Yeah, take Let's it away, it. Charles. Okay, so in order to understand and listen uh, critically to pop music, it's important to go beyond just the lyric. If you're only listening to the lyric, you're only listening to half the song. So what we want to do is tell you about rhythm, melody, harmony, form, and timbre to help you better understand what's going on in the lyric. We're going to do this in a flash-style way. Mm -hmm. We're just going to start with rhythm. right? Rhythm, we know, is the heartbeat of a song, and when we listen to what's going on with the rhythm, it can tell us so much about what the song means. A great example would be a song like Hey Yeah from Outkast. Okay. That's me nodding my head. Yeah, right. <laughs> but here's the thing, Peter. If you were to count the beats out, you would hear that something is actually amiss. And this is why you want to tune into rhythm. Check this out. We're going to count it out with a really funny robotic voice. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two, three, four, 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 one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Did you catch what was wrong? 
Um, you're missing some threes and fours. <laughs> yes, exactly. Outcast has thrown us off. This is so interesting because this song is, uh, while upbeat and fun and often played at weddings, it's actually a song about marital discord. Hmm. And Andre 3000 of Outcast in it sings, you don't want to hear me, you just want to dance. And I think that what he does here is he throws in an extra beat of two. Uh, I think it's the third time around that he says, hey, yeah. Instead of counting out one, two, three, four, he just goes one, two. And that off-kilter rhythm is a nod to the song's underlying discordant meaning that will throw you off your feet. So we've got to tune in to rhythm to understand what's going on in the song. Well, I always focused on the Lucy Liu and Beyonce part of the lyric. <laughs> it never occurred to me it was about marital discord. But all right, I'm going to re-listen to it again. Thank you. Up next, we have Melody. And... Melody is one of the first things uh, that really connect us to an, an artist, like the way that different artists manipulate the same 12 pitches that everybody's using in these unique combinations. That's one of the ways we really identify a composer quickly. And a great example of this is Taylor Swift, who we found even has her own kind of melodic signature. It's this three-note motive that we call the T-drop because it always descends, and it's something that you can look Locate in so many different songs across her career, from one of her biggest hits, You Belong With Me, to songs like Mean, State of Grace, Welcome to New York. It's like peppered all through her work, like the signature on a, a painting or something. Do you want to sing it for us, Nate? Oh, yeah, of course. It goes, da, da, da. All right, let's hear that clip. Yeah. So this tea drop is a really, especially for an artist like Taylor Swift, who's often not taken very seriously as a songwriter, this is maybe a way to review her work and say, no, she has a lot of agency and she knows exactly what she's doing. And one of the ways she brings us into her sound world is by using this melodic motive again and again throughout her compositions. Yeah, you guys touched on something that, that we'll come back to later, the idea that she's not taken seriously as an artist, in part because she collaborates and works with so many producers, like Max Martin, who I've talked about, uh, I think on this podcast before with John Seabrook, um, who's produced you know, now literally decades of music yeah. and people now think of something as a Max Martin song, not a Taylor Swift song or a Backstreet song. Right, yeah. And that's and that also probably echoes that same rockist, uh, optimist divide we were talking about. You know, pop is an inherently collaborative art and that might make it confusing from a raucous perspective where you have just one creative genius behind the whole thing. And there's also probably some gendered perspective as well that Taylor Swift gets called out on this when so many great songwriters who also collaborate may not. So why don't we move on, for example, to uh, Fun, one of our favorite groups. They collaborated with Janelle Monet on the song We Are Young, and this is really instructive on harmony. So harmony, of course, are the underlying chords that make up the backdrop of a song and give it meaning. Oftentimes we might be not be paying attention to exactly how those chords are moving, but subconsciously, even for those of us who are not musicians, it can have incredible depth of meaning. Let's listen to fun really briefly. All right, Peter, pop quiz. What is this song about? 
having fun. <laughs> <laughs> this is about tonight. No, that's we are a band. young. Being young. Yes. Okay. Yes. Sorry. And and it has this sort of nostalgic looking back. It's this tonight. It's going to last forever somewhere in the forever past present timeless space. Well, the way that it creates this feeling is it's doing it by referencing one of the oldest chord progressions of all time. It's actually called the ice cream changes <laughs> or the 1950s progression. Originally, it actually came from the song Blue Moon from the 1930s and was used by folks like Benny King and Stand By Me later on. Here's that sound. Blue moon, you saw me standing alone. Stand by me. So by using this chord progression, which is so common and embedded and reified into cultural memory, even if it's subconscious, what it's doing is it sets the song in the nostalgic past. It's insufficient to just say tonight where we are young. It's absolutely necessary to put some chords in there. They're going to create that sense of uh, foreverness. So in a movie, you would play Blue Moon to set Hmm. the scene in the past, right? And here you're just lifting a chord progression, and you don't have to have ever heard Blue Moon or be able to identify Blue Moon. You subconsciously go, ah, old. Exactly. That is exactly what's going on. I'm learning. Okay, (laughs) good. Pop is all about taking cliches, things you know, and putting them in entirely novel situations. And a great example of that would be form. Yeah, you know, one of the difficult things about studying pop music is that it moves so fast. It's like just when you think you've acquainted yourself with a sound, it's changing. But one thing that has tended to really stay the same in popular music, probably going back to the 1960s, is the form of pop. That is, how a, a song is constructed section by section. And for decades now, that's been using the same exact structure, which has a really boring name. It's just called verse-chorus form. And that's because it moves from a verse to a pre-chorus to a chorus, and then you usually repeat that. And you might have a bridge, and then you'll have another final chorus or two, and that's the end of the song. That structure has just dominated pop for decades. And yet, it might be the case that the hegemony, sorry, that's an annoying word. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Professor. (laughs) I I can't help it, Charlie. uh, It might be that the dominance of this form is coming to an end, because if you take a big hit like We Found Love by Rihanna and Calvin Harris, It does something a little different. The chorus is not like the centerpiece of that song. It's actually something that happens right after the chorus. Check this out. Okay, it's going to be one sec for my pulse to go down. Um, That was such a surprising moment to encounter in a pop song, and that's because it's not really from the world of pop at all. It's from the world of electronic dance music. It's It's a build and a drop. And what it's doing in the middle of a pop song is really interrupting the kind of formal logic of pop as we know it. So one thing we're really interested in is to see if this disruption of pop form continues into the future or whether verse-chorus form will hang on for a few more decades. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I, I, that's a song I, I associate, I guess, with spin class. Um, <laughs> I, I do think about sort of that 
taking a traditional pop song and then making it sound like another kind of music that's popular, right? So EDM. That seems like a pretty old idea, right? Like you'd, in the 70s and 80s, you'd have sort of disco-inflected music and also reggae-inflected music because that was stuff that was also interesting, and then it sort of cycles out. But that's like why there are Rolling Stone songs that sound like disco songs because that's what was going on, and the Rolling Stones were interested in right. trying to be current. So I assume there's lots of examples like this where you drop in a different style and well, it, it plays with the structure, but then it goes back. Well, you know, I, I totally agree with you, Peter, except that w- what I would say when the Rolling Stones do disco, when Eric Clapton does reggae and other examples like this, they're still using verse-chorus form. Mm-hmm. So even though the sound world, the rhythm, the the instrumentation may be borrowed, the verse-chorus form, I would say more often than not, is going to underlie the structure of those songs. So this is an instance where you're right, it's that same kind of borrowing, but it's disrupting the song at a deeper level, at a structural level. Yeah, and so I think under like, paying attention to form, you know, oftentimes we just sort of are just sort of, uh, a song will wash over us. But if we sort of cue in, we might notice where actually choruses are being shifted around to sort of change the energy of a song. And here, uh, that's exactly what's going on. The the chorus is being shifted so that there's a a whole larger section happening afterwards to create even more energy for your spin class. Good. Thank you. All right. We've got uh, two more topics, and one of them is the least theorized but Mm -hmm. most important part of popular music that just people don't talk nearly enough about, and that is timbre. T-I-M-B-R-E. Timber, Not timber. Not timber, y'all. <laughs> Not timber. That's a song by Kesha. <laughs> timber is the texture of sound. You know, a lot of people might say with pop music, oh, the melody's really boring, or they're just using those same old chords from the 1950s over and over and over mm-hmm. again, and so the music is no good. It's reductive and simple. And so often it's actually the texture of the sound where the innovation is happening in sound design, synthesis, sampling. And I think a great example of this is actually just to listen to a voice. You know, ultimately, the most important thing that defines a pop song is going to be the voice that's front and center. Mm. And you have to have a voice which is going to stand out. The texture of a voice can even evoke meaning within the song. So I want to play you one of our favorite examples. I'm just going to picture Peter uh, spinning to this one as well. Good. You know this one? Well, only because there's a cheat sheet in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is Sia. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Is it Sia? Sia, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. So this is Chandelier by Sia. Sia is sort of famous for rarely showing her face and uh, known just for her hairstyle. She's an Australian pop singer, absolutely talented. And here, we, we really want to tune into that raspy, cracking voice. She even says, feel my tears as they dry. And in that moment, her voice sort of cracks and sort of right. almost like she needs a, a sip of water. Yeah. And the sort of recklessness and rasp that you hear in her voice is I think amplifying that same reckless metaphor of swinging from a chandelier. The way that she styles her voice actually evokes the meaning of the song. Mm, she's on the edge. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What do you make of of do we still call it autotune or is it called something else? Yeah, yeah. Auto-tune, really distorting yeah. a voice, which has been very popular now for many years, and in many cases makes the singer to my ears indistinguishable. 
mm. because you've, you've processed it and it sounds like a machine. And then there's another version of it where I think particularly like with a lot of female singers where they are sort of molded to sort of sound the same. See, it does sound very particular, but it seems like a lot of pop hits either it'd be, you know, they, they're going to sound like the other person or they're going to sound like the, the robot that has processed their voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, asking what do we think of auto-tune is kind of like asking a painter what do you think of oil paints. It's ubiquitous, right? So actually the majority of recording artists are probably using some form of auto-tune on their recording. Mm-hmm. It's usually, you know, 90, even close to 100% of artists. Most pop songs have uh, pitch correction that's going on and all kinds of effects that are that are bringing that, that voice to life. I think here you're speaking probably more to when auto-tune is used at its uh, extreme level, often in hip-hop. To intentionally distort the voice. Like you're not, you're not trying to pitch correct something. You're not trying to make Sia sound a little bit better. You're trying to make artist X sound exactly like artist Y. You know, it is a sound which I think is often a divisive, it's a polarizing sound. And it often can be a generational sound as well. Mm-hmm. For some people, it just isn't their taste, and that's totally fine. I think for people who are maybe more tuned into it, they see that the really good autotune performers are intentionally performing with autotune. In fact, they often use it as a in pre-production rather than in post-production and are singing into it to create as much maximum distortion and strength range digital artifacting as possible to create their own their own version of autotune. A great example would be like Kanye West on Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy in which he has this autotune effect which almost sounds like a distorted electric guitar going into this extended long solo. So I think there are ways to make it your own. Got it. Okay. And we've got one building block left, right? That's right. And this one is uh, probably about an, another fundamental aspect of pop, that's the lyric. How do music and lyrics interact in ways to make these songs so indelible? I think one way that we love to enter into this discussion is through one of our favorite and, and a really ancient musical technique called text painting. This is where you literally illustrate the meaning of a lyric through a musical choice. And this is something that composers have done since uh, the Middle Ages when they would write, uh, like medieval troubadours would write songs about birds fluttering their wings and their voices. The melody in the, of, of, the, of the song would literally flutter. So this kind of thing, if the song talks about going up, the melody goes up. If it talks about going down, it goes down. And a, a sterling example of this is uh, the chorus of Justin Timberlake's What Goes Around, dot, 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 comes around. So this is a song about, I guess, karmic retribution in a relationship. (laughs) And as he's singing this line, What Goes Around, Comes Around, the melody that he's singing is doing the exact same thing. It starts on this note, what goes around, and then it descends, goes around, goes around, comes all the way, and then it shoots back up, back around, and then finally it's going around to the very first note we started on, back around. So we've done this big circle, essentially. We've gone around and come back around, both in lyric and in melody. So that's a subtle way that this song is really giving its message to you on sort of multiple musical planes at once. That's so clever. You guys do this every week, right? <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. We have, the, we have the best job in the world. <laughs> this is great. So we've had a 20-minute crash course in, in how, to, how to unpack a song. We're going to put it all together with a song that, that uh, is going to be of all of you are going to love. Jim Maiella of AMC Networks is going to get very excited about <laughs> this. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back here with Nate and Charlie. They are going to put all the lessons together for us in one awesome, what's, what's the best way to describe this? Nate and Charlie are going to explain how all this stuff comes together for us. How about that? Absolutely. In order to bring all of these elements together, it's best to take one song and see how they apply. And so probably the right thing to do in the Switched On Pop tradition would be mm-hmm. just go to the billboard, see what's number one, and break it down. And right now, the top song on the billboard is Circles by Post Malone. Post Malone, also known as Austin Richard Post. He's a Texan-raised artist. He sort of bleeds between the boundaries of pop, folk, and hip-hop. He's famous for his face tattoos, and much more importantly, his catchy melodies on songs like Congratulations, Rockstar, and Psycho. But for the purpose of this uh, conversation, we should listen to Circles. But before we get there, yeah. one second. He's also much derided, right? Yeah. Is it just because he's a white guy doing sort of hip-hop slash African-American inflected music? Uh, no. Is it's something else that, that people who don't like Post Malone are upset about? Yeah, it's not just that. It's uh, I think it's focused more on comments he made in which he was dismissive of hip-hop tradition and at least feigned a certain ignorance of hip-hop tradition, uh, which made people feel like he was, right, another in a long line of musical appropriators. And there may be a lot of validity to that claim, but I do think he has maybe earned back some goodwill in the intervening years since he made those comments and may have sort of wised up a little bit and come more into his own as a musician. Um, Might have also lost some people in his, uh, He has he's kind of into internet conspiracy theories as well. I mean, he, might, he might be one of those QAnon people. We're not so sure, but he makes some. He makes po- political statements as well, and that ah. often will turn people off. Ah, the plot thickens. All right, yeah. so we're going to okay. separate the artist from his art right Absolutely. now, and we'll enjoy it. Yeah. This okay. is about the song. Here is Circles. So we got circles in our ear, and I think the thing we need to do is apply what we learned in the first half and think about what is really going on in this song, right? At the surface level, this is another relational discord song. It must be coming <laughs> into wintertime. Uh, this is two people running in circles, setting flame to the fire, or setting fire to the flame. What's the right? <laughs> I can't quite. I don't it. know. Are you having a stroke? What's I'm <laughs> sorry. Um, well, it, it, basically, what's going on in my brain is it's running in circles, trying to find the word, just as these two people are trying to figure mm, out what's going on in safe, their yeah. love. Thanks, nice. Nate. And and it's not going well for them. But there's a lot more than just the lyric that is cueing us into this. So let's look at some of the musical elements. The first one we talked about was rhythm, right? Mm. And this is a actually pretty simple rhythm. Check this out. Here's the intro. Peter, what words would you use to describe the rhythm here? Spin class. 
Yeah, but like when in spin class? Mm. Well, you told me how it's 120 beats per minute. It seems slower than that to me. That's exactly what's important about this song is that it feels it feels like a slow song. Like this is a depressing song, but it actually has a pretty driving rhythm right at 120 beats per minute. And that's what I'm cued into here. We have a kick and a snare that are hitting every downbeat and every offbeat. It has this really sort of moving forward sense that contrasts that sort of more cold and eerie, washed out background music. And I think that's going to give us some important context for what the other musical elements are going to tell us. Yeah. So just as the sort of driving rhythm might illustrate this idea of circularity, the melody does the same thing. Uh, it is literally repeating the same melody over and over and over. So just as the lyrics are describing circles, the rhythm is kind of driving us in circles, so the melody is doing the same thing. We do this every time, seasons change and our love Just over and over. I mean, different lyrics every time, which keeps it fresh, but that's part of the intent of this song is to burn this melody into your brain. It's kind of burnt, yeah. Good. Singed. Let's talk about the lyric now, because the lyric also has some interesting clues that do that same technique Nate was talking about earlier in the Justin Timberlake, that idea of text painting, that I think helped paints that melancholy feeling. So here's Post singing in the bridge. I love that. It's subtle. Uh -huh. Did you catch it? Yeah. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Echo. Echo. Is echo. <laughs> echo. echo. Ricola. <laughs> <laughs> and you know how I said the, the rhythm, the drums sound like they're sort of driving and forward. Here, there's this really spacious, washed out, and really sort of cold feeling. It's like you're in this cavernous space, and that literally comes to life with the words. We can hear the same thing when he sings about feeling cold in cold, the chorus. Cold, cold, cold. <laughs> Right, when he sings cold, he goes, cold. He's, <laughs> he's shivering. Trembling. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's like, yeah, that's like text painting 101 right there. So, you know, another way, uh, we, we mentioned harmony as another one of these musical building blocks. Um, and, and this chord progression here, uh, unlike ice cream changes, is maybe a little more unusual. And that's probably very deliberate. What this chord progression does is it inserts one chord that kind of comes out of nowhere. It's a minor chord that doesn't belong to the key. And every time you hear it, it gives you this little like shot of melancholy because it's this like unexpectedly kind of dark chord in an otherwise pretty major progression, which is absolutely in keeping with all of these themes we've been talking about so far. Let's get a little taste of that minor Intruder, that minor chord. Right here. Yeah, so it's like the second to last chord you hear in the first go around. And every time it just like brings you down a little bit. And in doing so, it's reaching back to much older musical traditions. This little, I guess you'd call it modal mixture, shows up in a composer like Frédéric Chopin, the great romantic pianist of the 19th century. Mm 
it just gives you that like yearning feeling. It also shows up in a track by Radiohead, like No Surprises. Oh, gets me every time. And the band that probably went to this trick the most was the Beatles. It's like one of their go-to moves to just inject a little bit of sadness. There are places I remember So right when he says, all my life, it goes from that major mm-hmm. to minor, and it just makes you go like, oh. oh. <laughs> yeah, words, <laughs> words fail. Words <laughs> fail in certain moments. So yeah, Harmony is giving us the same message. Circles going around again and again, never getting anywhere, bumming you out. What about timbre, Charlie? We, we talked about that in terms of Sia. How do we apply this to Post Malone? Oh, well, we definitely hear some of that auto-tune on the voice. That's definitely happening that Peter was talking about. Yeah, what do you think, Peter? Is this like anonymizing Post Malone, his use of auto-tune? Well, that's the thing. I mean, he sounds like other hip-hop artists to me, and that's why I can sort of understand the critique. Like, he's doing something that African-American artists do, and he's white, but that's more palatable for that audience. Mm. So, yeah, I'm not sure that I would be able to identify Post Malone versus... 10 of the people who sort of sound like that to me. You know, we interviewed the, uh, a music journalist named Simon Reynolds on our show, and he had, a, he had a kind of interesting theory that made me think differently about autotune. He said autotune is such a foundational part of the sound of pop music now that artists who succeed are the ones whose voices lend themselves to being autotuned. Hmm. So, mm-hmm. like... Someone like Kesha, who I think we mentioned earlier, Post Malone. These are artists whose voices are, are like almost just just by by happy accident, just like they were born to sing with auto tune, <laughs> which could be seen as a negative. But you know, I, I think that's something we privilege. We privilege different voices at different points in time. You know, once we privileged really high voices, once we privileged uh, voices that had a lot of vibrato, now maybe we privilege voices that work really well with this auto-tuned software, for better or worse. I, I personally find it, I, I find it kind of comforting <laughs> to listen to a, a song like this, and even though it may have lose some of the personality of the voice a little bit. Yeah, I don't mind it. It just, it just I mean, I also assume that like in ten years or five years. We will go back and every, you know, we'll be instantly able to place a song in 2018, 2017, 2019 because mm. yeah. it sounds like this. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's definitely true. Pop music is moving so fast all the time. And as soon as something becomes too popular, it sort of fades through the hype cycle and something else comes in. So I, I think we mm-hmm. will be totally unsurprised when 2022, we can listen to this song and you're like, yep, that's the end of 2019. Absolutely. You know, I wanted to say one other thing on Timber. You know, this, yeah, yeah. this song is really about, if there's one lyric that really sort of ties this song together for me, it's that seasons change and our love went cold, the opening line in the chorus. Mm. In this song, the way that it's produced, all of the background textures, they really are truly cold. And you can hear that actually in the sort of the last line of the song. It's so cold. Run away. Wow. Doesn't it feel like it's fading into like an oblivion field of crystalline mm-hmm. snow? Well, now it does. Damn. <laughs> Damn, Charlie. Way to paint a picture for me. Um, yeah, no. Now I'm like getting goosebumps. It's like it's I'm I want to bundle up. 
that's quite a reverb tail there. Yeah. Just, yeah. Um, cool. Okay. What's left? Form. Yeah. The, yeah. The the underlying the sort of tectonic uh, substructure of this song. This one is pretty standard. You yeah. know, it's we talked earlier about like how prominent verse chorus form is. This is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. It goes verse, pre chorus, chorus. Frankly, it's exactly what you would expect. Maybe the one thing that is a little different is the intro to this song. Yeah. Like, the intro is unexpected, frankly, just because it's so vast. <laughs> it's, it's almost like, 30 seconds long. Yeah. Uh, like, we've discussed elsewhere how um, streaming has tended to make songs shorter and make you get into them a lot faster. This kind of bucks that trend. It really takes its time getting into it. It, like, sets the tone a little bit. Which I think is actually somewhat to Peter's point about autotune of just, like, trends are always changing. One of the trends of, of really 2018 and throughout 2019 has been shorter songs because mm. you only get paid per listen per song, and so it sort of makes economic sense to write a whole bunch of really short songs if people are going to listen for 10 minutes, try to get 10 songs in there rather than two songs. And uh, and, and Post Malone is somebody who really takes these rules seriously. He, a lot of his songs are super tight and short. He puts his chorus up front so that you catch things right away. But here, I think he's sort of showing that actually sometimes if you buck those rules, you might stand out more and you get a number one hit. And you think he's thinking that through, or he or his team or his producers are thinking that through. Like, I'm traditionally I go this way, traditionally most songs now are shorter, I'm going to intentionally go the other way. You know, it's always hard to know without talking directly to the artists. So yep. many of the greatest uh, songs in pop music are written really sort of at the subconscious level in 15 minutes. Yep. But there's this great quote in in our book where, we, where we're talking about Sia and and she's being criticized, you know, saying, hey, how, how can I take your music seriously? You're writing this song in 15 minutes. And she says, well, it took me 20 years to write a song in 15 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. In the same way when, you know, you've got a last minute, someone says, hey, can you interview this person right now? Peter, you can go off and do that because you've done so many interviews and you just have it all ready right there. And I'm the CEO of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> that is high praise. <laughs> and because uh, we, we really love Sia. Um, and so oftentimes there are producers and other people behind the scenes who are sort of like throwing these more theoretical or sort of business logic into the song to make sure that it's going to be optimally performing. But it's often a mix of uh, the intentional and the subconscious. Mm-hmm. So what do we do with all of this? Um, you, you guys do this for a living, right? It is yeah. literally your jobs to break down these songs. Um, and obviously you've got a popular podcast and there's a lot of people who want to join you in that. Mm. And I'm really interested in always just sort of understanding the mechanics of how a thing came to be. Yeah. So this just this just hits my pleasure zone. <laughs> if you're someone who just likes music, you're intellectually curious, um, I guess it's the same kind of question I have when we're supposed to diagram a poem, right, in high school. Right. Like, <laughs> what if we just enjoy music? What are we meant to do with this knowledge bomb you've dropped on us? Yeah. Okay, great. That's such a good question, Peter, because let's put a big asterisk. See, I'm good at this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone listened to our podcast and came away with the feeling that they were no longer allowed to enjoy music, that would be horrible. Like, we don't, that is not our goal. Um, not at all. We, mm-hmm. we never, we don't want to take away that visceral, like, just high of listening to a song and just experiencing it emotionally. Yeah. And like, we never want to take the way. But I guess, I mean, this is why we called the book How Popular Music Works and Why It Matters, because there is a point to this too. And that's because music is not just a private pleasure. It's a, it's part of public discourse and it's part of the way we understand our identities, our communities. It's part of the way we join together and it's part of the, sometimes the way we drive each other apart. So I think 
understanding how music works on us. And again, as like Charlie said at the beginning, not just from the perspective of lyrics, but also from the perspective of its musical qualities, is really important in, in as much as pop music plays this essential role in our lives. It's worth understanding clearly what we're listening to uh, before we debate the the role it has. It's also one of the most, I think it's a sort of personal responsibility that I see about always keeping an open ear and finding ways to listen to things that I might not otherwise be interested in. Music, especially popular music, has this sort of strange place in in conversation in which you can still say, I like this music, but that music is bad. But like, you know, it would be completely mm-hmm. inappropriate to be like, I like all this food, but that food is bad. And that's a, an insult to a whole culture. Mm-hmm. And I think- And you know not to say that too. Yeah, oh, exactly. Right? You wouldn't right. go, Mexican food sucks, <laughs> right? You might've said that 10 years ago, but now you know, even if you believe that you don't, even if you don't like Mexican food, you wouldn't say that out loud in, 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 uh, in public. And likewise with music, it's totally okay to have taste. Like there's things that I enjoy and there's things that I don't enjoy, mm. but it's not that you enjoying that other thing is wrong. And so I think we actually have, there's still room in the conversation to change around pop music. It's not just about poptimism and taking pop music seriously. It's about understanding, having a, a slightly expanded vocabulary of some of just these basic building blocks that can help give us access into the things that we don't know. So if you're like, I don't like that thing. I, it just doesn't sound right to me. It sounds bad. Mm. Then if you start to use some of these ideas, think about its form, its timbre, its harmony, its lyric, its melody, its rhythm it might give you access into that world to better understand, appreciate it, and at least see it for what it is, even if it isn't the thing that you want to be playing every single day in your spinning class. Right, so if you roll your eyes when you go to the wine store and you say, I want a good wine for 15 bucks, and they start talking about terroir, um, you might still know that you like stuff that is more minerally, right? Yeah. And and that would help you get wine that you like Exactly. Yeah, I like the wine. By the way, I like like minerally red wine. (laughs) But yeah, I, I do roll my eyes. This is great. Um, I want to talk to you guys for hours and hours. I did have a—the thing I keep coming back to over and over here, though, is this idea, and it relates to poptimism and rockistism. I don't know. What do we call it? Rockism? Yeah, let's uh, go with that. Sure. Rockism. So we'll stipulate that the the idea of Keith Richards waking up in the middle of the night and writing down uh, the the hook from Satisfaction, which he claims he did, I think, happens less often than you than you thought. And there has always been there have always been collaborative teams of people making music, and you've got things like the Brill Building, and um, over time, lots of people have touched lots of songs that you think were written by one person. That said, it does seem like we are very much in an era where you now have dozens of people collaborating on a song, sometimes even many more because you've got sampling involved. Is it fair to raise an eyebrow at least about that stuff and say, I can still enjoy all of this, but I I shouldn't be thinking of it as Sia's song or Taylor Swift's song. I should be thinking this is a a music produced by 60 people, sometimes literally in a house, et cetera, together. John Seabrook wrote the the song Machine. That was the book I was thinking Mm of. Should we have an asterisk towards any of this music as we're thinking about it, or at least when we're thinking about sort of what the artist's intent is, if if the artist is one of 50 people who created this thing? I want to start by saying that there is a productive and real tension between the sort of cult of authenticity that a pop star has mm-hmm. to perform, right, whatever their persona is, and and we really absorb that persona. And I think that there is a co- sort of cognitive dissonance between that person who's telling their personal story through lyric and the reality that it actually is a production. And uh, it's not a huge logical leap to realize that, of course, when someone walks on stage in a stadium and there's lights going off everywhere and it's, a, you know, it, clearly there's hundreds and hundreds of people behind the thing to make it happen. And that's 
true of the music as well. So I think it's it's fair to acknowledge that tension, but I think the collaborative element of contemporary pop music is something we really celebrate. Yeah, you mentioned uh, John Seabrook, who's we're huge fans of. Um, you could read our book and his book, and I think you would be like, reach pop nirvana (laughs) he has a metaphor or or a comparison of the pop star almost like um like michelangelo's workshop you know Mm. Uh, the sistine chapel is paint we say that was painted by michelangelo but in reality it was by a whole team a whole renaissance workshop uh, in his employ maybe that's a better model for thinking about pop music and I'm glad you asked because it does, it, it is a really uh, maybe a central point of tension, as Charlie was saying. I remember, I, I'll get the year wrong, but sometime in the last five years, it was a very contentious Grammy ceremony when both uh, Beck and Beyonce were up for album of the year and Beck won, which mm-hmm. was very controversial for a lot of people who thought Beyonce deserved it. Uh, but the argument that a lot of people offered was that, well, Beck you know, if you look at the credits of Beck's album, he is the songwriter. He played all the instruments. He's the, you know, the sole creative genius behind this, and thus he deserves it. Whereas Beyonce is working with all these songwriters, collaborators, producers. It doesn't belong to her. And I have to say, like, whatever you think of either of those artists, that argument sounds pretty BS to me because it doesn't really have anything to do with who made the best album. It says more about what are sort of your priorities and prejudices when it comes to these certain myths of creativity and and genius. So I would like to get to a place where we can accept the collaborative nature as of pop as not a negative, but just uh, a reflection. I don't know, maybe like a, like the way a movie is made. You know, there's one director, but there's so many people Create, bringing that thing to life. I'm glad you're th- talking about Beck because I was thinking about Odelay, which is created by the Dust Brothers. Oh, that's yeah, that's a great created, point. Yeah. Who created Paul's Boutique, which is my favorite album of all time, which could not be created today because it's almost entirely created out of samples. Right. Um, and I was reading your sample chapter last night. It's <laughs> not a coincidence that my sort of peak for me of pop music is like 1994, <laughs> when you could still take everyone else's right. music and make yes, awesome the songs wild, out wild of it. Wild Wild West of sampling. One, as an aside, should I continue to be bummed out when I find out that one of my favorite De La Soul songs or Beck songs or Tribe Called Quest songs is actually just someone else's song just sort of looped with a couple of additional samples, whether it's Three Feet High and Rising or, um, you know, if you've never heard Walk on the Wild Side and you heard the Tribe Called Quest version first, any, any version of this, right, where, the, where the, the, the hip-hop song in particular is really dependent on one one older song at all should that make me sad when i realize that or should i should should i be happy that someone's managed managed to take the same song and make it popular again one two three no No. (laughs) peter you've got my heckles up uh no wow hackles yeah hackles sorry Mm -hmm. timbre Hackles. (laughs) Hackles. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I'll treat your hackle for Tamba. <laughs> You're my there, heckler. There will be up. a quiz later. I will be wearing the elbow patches. Please continue. Sampling is one of the quintessential ways in which contemporary music is made. And it is, and actually in our book, one of, one of the artists that we interviewed, uh, the producers of the group Clipping with Davi Diggs uh, from Hamilton, they are, they're <laughs> a hip-hop group, and they talk about sampling as almost the modern form of notating music. You know, if, if you are Beethoven, you had to write music on on sheet music, right? And then people had to translate it. Today, there are so many ways that you want to say something, and the only way to say it is to reference the original and put it into a new context. So we talk about 
paper planes and the way that MIA contorts the Clash in order to take a song that the Clash had written that was a um, sort of caricature of 1980s immigration and, a, and and Joe Strummer plays a sort of bigoted character. She inverts that and in Paper Planes she plays the imagined American criminal who's going to bang, bang, bang and, and take your money. And by sampling that, that work, it is a signifier of all this larger body of material that you could only access through the sample. I think that the way that we have set up sampling copyright law such that um, there's really no way to comment on another work without that artist's permission mm-hmm. is um, probably has overreached um, because you can't have brilliant albums like Paul's Boutique that you mentioned, which at the time was actually one of Miles Davis's favorite record for complete innovation in the way that music, music was being created. What? You didn't know that? You, whoa, Charlie, just dropping dropping bombs. On yeah, it yeah, no sampling is. Uh, I, 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 uh, there's so we could go so far That's into so it, cool. but no. you guys, you guys blew my mind last night when I was <laughs> as I was reading your chapter and listening to Paper Planes and, and the Clash. Where I got to part where you explain that most samples now are actually re-recorded yeah interpolations well not maybe not most but a a lot are yeah and the reason why for that is that um, when you sample a song you need to get two different clearances you need to get a license for both the uh, song itself but also for the recorded performance and oftentimes they're actually hard to track down especially if it's an old funk sample of a song that was only you know printed at 500 copies of and you can't find the person that that had the original so you actually have to recreate it last question and this is a a, a big softball for you guys because it's in your chapter why is Beethoven Beethoven connected to sampling. (laughs) Beethoven is connected to sampling uh, because, so we were talking about paper planes. So in Paper Planes, in the chorus, there are these gunshots. Rather than lyrics, there's gunshots that are going off in cash registers. And Beethoven, famously in one of his pieces, wanted to evoke a sense of sort of wartime And in order to do so, he actually notated on his score, couldn't sample, there weren't samplers back then, uh, he notated on his score that musket shots should be shot out into the the performance, which I think probably would have given people a real startle, even though, you know, clearly they were were blanks, but there were gunshots used to evoke that that war-like quality. But if Beethoven was recording today, he would have said, hit this button on the the 808 or whatever. (laughs) Exactly. 100%. Yeah, he would have hit the the musket sample. (laughs) Should we end on paper planes or on Beethoven? We'll figure that out. um, I think, I uh, I vote We'll, we'll, I vote we'll, Ludwig. My, that's just my Okay, we're going to yeah. conclude with some Beethoven. Um, Nate, Charlie, you guys are awesome. Thank you for indulging me on this. Thank you for creating a podcast for me. I'm very appreciative. Um, if you're still listening to this, and you should, and you're not listening to Nate and Charlie, go subscribe to Switched on Pop, and then go buy their book, which should be available any day now, correct? Correct, yeah. It's officially released. Uh, I'm released. I'm using, like, musical terminology. It's published uh, on December 13th. It drops. When you hear this podcast, you will have no excuse not to have bought this thing. Go buy it. Thanks Thanks so much. That was was really fun. 